This week in the business of bourses, Hong Kong makes a surprise bid for the London Stock Exchange. Welcome to the Exchange Invest Weekly. Welcome to the Exchange Invest Weekly. My name is Patrick L. Young. Thanks for joining us in the business of bourses this week. Obviously, the Hong Kong Exchange's surprise bid for the London Stock Exchange scoops the headlines. $39 billion offer coming out of the blue in many respects. Advised by Mullis seems quite interesting. Why only one small investment bank would be the people who are advising Hong Kong exchanges? True, we don't need to have the plethora such as the London Stock Exchange, where it's quite embarrassing to see, well, essentially pretty much every bank that's ever been known to man or beast. What, how many was it in Refinitiv? 36, 39, something like that. Anyway, looking at this bid, quite sensational. Noise, fire, fury, and actually nothing totally significant per se, with a lot of curious juxtaposition between Hong Kong and China. It was generally a week for the pooling of ignorance amongst the chattering classes of financial media. Those who appeared on the television channels were generally mediocre, frankly, in terms of their insights. The one thing that the Hong Kong Exchange's approach has demonstrated so far very clearly is the rather closed-mindedness of white middle-aged men in London. Apart from that, it's all to play for in this deal. George Trefgarn, the Boscobel PR comms guru, wrote a very good blog piece on the topic of the Hong Kong Exchange deal during the week and the glaring comms shambles, which, well, it was worth reading whether or not PR fascinated you. I'd already been discussing that topic previously in the course of Exchange Invest Daily. There are, generally speaking, only a handful at most of positive correspondence. Maggie Pagano in a note to the subscribers to the Reaction Service in the UK. Christian May, the editor of City AM, gave it a positive, if obviously guarded, welcome. But it's a worrying paralysis of negativity from the section of the media analytical complex who are railing against nations curtailing free thinking, but seem broadly incapable of consideration beyond their own narrow white male bourgeois biases, whether within the M25 or indeed in the case of former chairman of the CFTC, Jan Carlo, with whom I finally find something to disagree, those within the Beltway. It's quite incredible given the fact that actually a successful Hong Kong bid for the London Bourse would benefit both cities. This is about creating a mega massive powerhouse between the two largest international financial centres of capital in the world. Nonetheless, this is of course tinged also with Ramonian worry. For this is truly the ultimate deal in global Britain. Forget LSE Refinitive. LSE Refinitive, yes, built on the principles of global Britain and a post-Brexit UK. But of course, the terrible problem there is the execution risk. And the more we look at it, the concept of the LSE, itself a not terribly well-integrated group, trying to swallow whole the frankly irreconcilable to future reconciliation staff of Refinitive, Nee Thompson Reuters, Nee Reuters, is Well, it's impossible to see how they're going to manage to come together. These are people who've survived 10, 20, 30 years, whole careers, in fact, with their heads down, effectively avoiding being a finite, organised, progressive, capitalist, profitable body. 
And therefore, while the big data is a very exciting thing about Refinitiv, where can we really say that the London Stock Exchange has clearly got the ability to manage to integrate that sort of takeover? The truth is, it doesn't. And therefore, equally, an LSE Refinitiv deal is going to leave the LSE group actually becalmed for the course of the next five or six years, unable to participate in any other sorts of significant merger or other activity because it's going to be completely subsumed and consumed by the acquisition of Refinitiv. That's why ultimately I've moved away from Refinitiv as a good deal in favour of the Hong Kong exchanges deal, because this provides a relatively simple, clear path towards an integrated win-win. There are also templates which we can clearly use in relation to, for example, how the Hong Kong Shanghai Banking Corporation acquired the Midland Bank in the UK. There may need to be some political juxtapositions along the way, but at the same time, there is absolutely no justification in competition law. There is no justification in the UK takeover code for, say, Saeed Javid, the UK Chancellor of the Exchequer, who has taken apparently personal control of deciding whether or not this Hong Kong exchange bid is valid. There is no reason for the Chancellor of the Exchequer to try and come in and stop this bid taking place. Indeed, if you think about it another way, it would be absolutely surreal for the UK government, where even Mrs May, a notorious, frankly left-wing anti-capitalist Prime Minister of the Conservative Party of old, who wasted the last three years of post-Brexit possibility, when even Mrs May went to China and requested investment, how can she possibly, how can the Conservative Party under Boris Johnson, which claims to be a capitalist enterprise, go against the whole principle of free markets? Moreover, given the fact that HSBC is already the most prominent or pretty much the most prominent bank on the UK high street, it's absolutely clear that the Hong Kong exchange is much, much less of a threat in terms of the ownership of assets. It doesn't have a particular security angle that anyone could get concerned about. In fact, all it ends up with is a series of transitory trading databases. Look at the London Stock Exchange itself. The London Stock Exchange is only trading 60% of the actual equity at most that is listed on the London Stock Exchange. Yes, it's a good business. Yes, it has a lot of useful assets. But is it actually something that is strategic? Something that is ultimately some sort of a national icon? No. And that's exactly where the crazed, psychotic, frankly bigoted, closed-minded protectionists of the media who are enthralled to the agate prop of the LSE's outmoded PR operation really don't understand where modern markets have gone. Apart from the fact that actually modern markets are just as much, if not more so, about foreign exchange, about the trading of bonds, about all sorts of things in the world of derivatives, vastly more so than they are about pure equity. That's not to say there aren't huge advantages in pure equity between bringing together, for example, London plus Hong Kong, even Milan. The Italians would have to see it as being very attractive because, let's face it, what was one of the most embarrassing things that they saw in the course of the last number of years? Two key listings that lit disappeared from what ought to have been a natural home on the Milanese Bourse, which was namely Ferrari, which went to the New York Stock Exchange, and more acutely, Prada, which was listed where? Hong Kong. Why was it listed in Hong Kong? Because, of course, in the last 10 years, Hong Kong has been the top listings generator in the world for IPOs over five of those 10 years. That therefore gives us a very, very clear understanding of why this is such a powerful potential combination. And indeed, when we dig further into the whole issue of potential antitrust issues, 
unlike Deutsche Börse London Stock Exchange, the merger of equal desperation, where two sets of frankly desperate CEOs and C-suites tried to bring together what was never going to be a viable operation thanks to antitrust. This is a viable deal. For those who start worrying about the clearinghouses and so on, bear in mind the fact that very simply, the London Clearinghouse's primary zone of business, its number one business line, is not actually owned by the LCH. The LCH is merely the custodian, the operator, effectively a form of lessee of the services that it is providing to swap clear, which is actually owned by the banks. The banks can take that away, roll it up and move it to any financial centre or indeed any other clearinghouse they want to. They already have optionality to keep that in London if for some reason they believe there was some form of cause for concern about the independence of the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. So therefore also we have to think about the macro picture about Hong Kong. Can we really say that the UK government is going to have the nerve to turn round and essentially enunciate the idea that it no longer has faith in the one country, two systems that it negotiated? Will the UK turn its back on the colonial history that it has with Hong Kong, with the incredible process of capitalism and mutual investment that comes out of the special administrative region of China? I personally don't believe so. I think it would be suicide. Indeed, it would be the death of the global Britain strategy. So therefore, where are we in the actual sense of the deal? Clearly, Hong Kong Exchange is going to have to do a little bit of polishing in order to manage to make a better impact. It's probably going to have to raise the cash component of its bid, etc. But ultimately, given the fact that the London Stock Exchange has been such a go-go stock for so long on a speculative basis, finally we have the bid. The bid is not going to come from the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. They told us that this week. It's not going to come from the Intercontinental Exchange. They explained very painfully at a Barclays conference during the course of this week just how badly they'd come off in antitrust over the CMA, the Competition and Markets Authority in the UK, the antitrust regulator, when they were looking at the whole problem that arose from their acquisition of Trayport, which they had to divest and subsequently sell to Toronto Montreal Exchange Group. Therefore, there are no bidders out there in the exchange parish who have the money, who can buy and could consider buying the London Stock Exchange or will consider buying it. Because, of course, as we know, Deutsche Börse clearly cannot do so as a result of the bloody nose which they self-inflicted through their, frankly, myopic stupidity in pursuing the merger of equal desperation, which was never a valid strategy. But still, London Stock Exchange and Deutsche Börse wasted several hundred million on advisors in order to reach the process, which, for a lot less, I could have told them was never going to work. So within seven minutes, I knew that Deutsche Börse LSE was a dog. The merger of equal desperation wasn't going to happen. This deal actually has legs, provided that we don't see the British government buckling. And that's always a possibility because, frankly, gutless British government seems to be the order of the day in the course of the modern era. And despite the early initial promising signs from the UK government under Boris Johnson, it is still possible that Sir Javid could turn out to be, well, a rather small-minded protectionist but that, again, would be to destroy the global Britain narrative. And frankly, it would be another huge nail in the coffin of the British Conservative Party, which, if it doesn't deliver Brexit by the end of October, is probably fatally wounded. So when we look at that, obviously one issue that has arisen, and I mentioned it earlier in relation to what George was saying, George Trefgarn from Boscobel, I'd already been talking about this in the media. I mean, in the Exchange Invest newsletter, per se, because the whole media messaging strategy of Hong Kong exchanges has been, frankly, dismal. 
I mean, this was a week where there was a great argument for subscribing to Exchange Invest. That sales job was being made indirectly for me by the plethora of half-baked, often outright bigoted remarks by the plodding ignorami, some in the media, which remain somewhat locked in a Stockholm syndrome within London. It's quite commonplace, of course. I mean, you often find the local media are entirely see their world as being non-Copernican. They believe that they revolve around the local stock market rather than revolving around all the elements of the stock exchange solar system. Therefore, of course, the LSE's Dickensian agate prop holds sway with these sorts of people. And therefore, we see equally a large number of apparently financial professionals and a smattering of academics who, frankly, don't really have a great deal of perspective outside of what goes on in London. The expert talking heads that we saw this week were statistically good at counting to seven in terms of bids and saying, as there have been seven bids before, therefore, this one's not going to work. I'm not sure that on a basis of past performance cannot be regarded as being an indicator of future performance, that that's actually statistically valid. At the same time, it has to be said, Hong Kong exchanges demonstrated singularly some of the worst deal communication I have ever seen during the course of the last week. Their comms message was woeful. They have a fatal weakness in PR and comms coming out of Hong Kong. That's not unique to bourses, it has to be said, but it's not helpful in the bare pit of smugness based on little actual coherent expertise, which amounts to British financial media. You know, communication of the bid was just dismal on the PR and IR level. Hong Kong exchanges really need to up their game here. Having said that, what we know from the merger of equal desperation was that the London Stock Exchange and Deutsche Börse also had to hugely revise their calm strategy within days of launching the merger of equal desperation bid because they too were somewhat inept at what went on. We actually ended up there with layers of PR on top of layers of PR, on top of agencies, on top of handlers, on top of... Well, it was a mess, a total mess, and that's how they got to spending several hundred millions on what was an ultimately utterly futile deal. But at the same time, ultimately, Hong Kong Stock Exchange need to pull their socks up. They need to improve their whole PR messaging handling. And at the moment, it appears that Hong Kong itself is incapable of doing that. A great deal more strategic communications is needed. They are not actually reaching out and identifying the people overall who are actually in favour of their deal, which I find quite remarkable, because there are a great many people who see the light, who understand what competitive bourses mean, not these old line archaic, unfashionable concepts that we have to adhere to the London Stock Exchange. As I've always said, there will always be at least one major global stock exchange in London. The ridiculous conceit is that that stock exchange needs to be the London Stock Exchange. Hong Kong exchanges provide an opportunity for London Stock Exchange Group to be rescued from their own relative inability to manage to integrate their future purchase of Refinitiv, to define, in fact, redefine capitalism so that we can aim across from the UK into Asia and develop a truly, truly amazing new platform. Think about Saudi Aramco, the upcoming mega IPO that people have been really, really fascinated to see coming in the near future. Saudi Aramco were uncomfortable with purely listing in London because of the Brexit conundrum. They were at the same time not quite comfortable that Hong Kong was just broad enough to reach the rest of the world, X, simply the Hong Kong Southeast Asian firmament. It was attractive, but not quite a killer. Imagine what that sales pitch would have been like if 
we had been able to pitch them something like an IPO solution which involved London plus Hong Kong and indeed possibly also Milan. That, I think, would be a killer application that could really take the battle directly to the hyper-liquid US stock markets and IPO havens of the New York Stock Exchange and Nasdaq. And indeed, it goes without saying that where the LSE is poor on PR, where the Hong Kong Exchange has proven tragically wanting on their PR and IR as well, to a point where they're arguably even worse this week than the London Stock Exchange, quite an achievement it has to be said, the really class entities in this business who can do their PR incredibly well on a remarkably reasonable budget are in fact the New York Stock Exchange and the Intercontinental Exchange Group as a whole, and also of course NASDAQ. Therefore, Hong Kong Exchange needs to be emulating their best practice as the undisputed top-tier players in communications in the parish. It's an exciting time for Hong Kong exchanges. I wish their bid well, but they have a mountain to climb to improve the PRIR comms dynamics, particularly as they're fighting against the classic reaction, the reluctance to change, which marks out many financial centres, particularly London, which at the moment is going through an appalling period of introversion, driven by many people being simply scared of the future and scared of escaping the shackles of Brussels, which is hopefully inevitable on October the 31st. Exchange Invest is the daily must-read by the most influential figures operating the world's best markets. We invite you to join the exclusive group of Boris Bosses and other C-suite executives who make Exchange Invest the exchange of information, their daily business intelligence guide to markets the world over. Exchange Invest is available to subscribers at $200 per user per year or currency equivalent. You can get more details at exchangeinvest.com or email me, patrick at derivativesvision.com. Meanwhile, some very exciting news which emerged from the Intercontinental Exchange. It has not been confirmed yet. It was first of all picked up by FOW, Futures and Options World magazine. It looks as if the Intercontinental Exchange is aiming to launch an Abu Dhabi-based futures exchange. What an absolutely brilliant idea. The only evidence we have so far is that the Intercontinental Exchange has submitted an application to the International Organization for Standardization, seeking a market identifier code, MIC, for an Abu Dhabi-based futures and options marketplace. If it was launched, ICE Futures Abu Dhabi would be the exchange group's first venture in the Middle East. Now, there has been no confirmation from ICE about this, I hasten to add, and it may well just be a speculative administrative venture. But at the same time, the concept is really mouthwateringly exciting. Using the excellent world-class ADGM regulatory structure, that's Abu Dhabi Global Markets, was it really makes a huge amount of sense to be a base for a sound Anglo-Saxon legal base, not Sharia law, financial centre and financial exchange platform. The ADGM itself exists in a delicious island. It's isolated by bridges from the main part of Abu Dhabi itself. And as you cross those bridges, you go from Sharia law into this perfectly formed, elegant, modern, digital, pulsing financial centre. That is ADGM, the Abu Dhabi global market. You can be downtown in the centre of Abu Dhabi in five minutes, but at the same time, while you're in ADGM, you are completely bound by an Anglo-Saxon style legal system. Very, very exciting concept. It's similar to what's been done in Dubai, for example. And of course, given the fact that ADNOC, the Abu Dhabi National Oil Corporation, have been proposing to overhaul the way they trade oil from their Abu Dhabi base recently, that could also provide some very, very exciting opportunity 
and optionality for the Intercontinental Exchange. Moreover, one emirate across, I'm sure there are going to be a lot of people who are going to be very worried because, of course, an ICE venture in the region would be a direct shot across the bows of the DME. Now, that's the Dubai Mercantile Exchange, albeit WAGs, I think, are nowadays saying that the M between Dubai and Exchange stands in this case for moribund. In other deal and trade news this week, there are rumours that the Bratislava Stock Exchange in Slovakia has been in talks with the Warsaw Stock Exchange. Certainly they've been incredibly close in terms of discussions over the course of years, although there is no clear evidence they've ever actually been trying to merge. That said, Bratislava Exchange, which incidentally is much more a bond marketplace than per se an IPO and stock exchange listed venue, instantly were quick to offer a very rapid denial that they are not in talks with the Warsaw Bourse. In other interesting market creation plans, Turkey is looking at creating its own national credit rating firm. Could be very interesting. Borsa Istanbul wasn't immediately available to comment, but it would seem that the plan is based around part of the BIST's infrastructure as the national chosen infrastructure provider of the Turkish state with very close links to government. But what we certainly know is Turkish politicians have long complained about what they perceive as being unfair treatment at the hands of foreign rating agencies. Over in Dublin, we had some unfortunate post-deal news. Another 9.7 million euros of extra costs have been racked up after the sale to Euronext. This really is turning into a rather sorry tale. That brings the costs up to now some 24 million euros, including a $5.7 million payoff to Deirdre Summer. Well, good for her as she departed as CEO. But it really does raise a lot more questions as to why anybody ever thought this was going to be a good deal for Ireland or the Irish Stock Exchange. Or indeed, perhaps it could be some form of tax deal where Euronext are deliberately pushing cost into the Dublin exchange in order to try and improve the future financial position of Euronext as a group. Who knows? It's not clear. Meanwhile, Cumex, the dividend scandal. It continues to fester. Prosecutors raided Commerzbank over the whole fraud during the course of the week. We've heard of many people who are on trial. There are a couple of them looking at potentially 10-year jail terms in Germany from the UK who were in the media this week. At the same time, finally, we do see it touching the parish of exchanges and market infrastructure directly. Clearstream staff suspected of misleading authorities over tax fraud scandal ran the headline in Bloomberg. This is worrying. This scandal has not yet reached the front pages in the way I suspect it will in the near future. Meanwhile, over in the European Union, ESMA, sadly we have a defeatist timeline coming out of there. The European Union, whose priorities ought to have been a consolidated tip before they indulged in their MIFID II disaster, are now making all manner of excuses. Years and years and years, it seems, would be the timeline to deliver a unified tip. That's simply not acceptable. MIFID I is well over a decade old since it was implemented, and yet we still don't actually have a single source of market prices. Why, oh why, did we waste so many years and thousands of pages of poor innocent printed out trees in order to manage to have the rubbish which is MIFID II, which, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, even the Germans, those loyal supplicants to the European Union, are complaining about being overly prescriptive. Indeed, it has to be said, had we left the job to just the proven execution skills of, say, ICE or NASDAQ, I would have thought some form of interim solution for a form of unified EU ticker tape could be found in weeks, if only the European Union had the focus and the political will. Finally, amongst our major stories this week, happy birthday to the New Zealand Stock Exchange, 150 years young. 
great to see the Antipodean venue still surviving independently and still looking for some very exciting opportunities to the future. Indeed, the Financial Markets Authority, the regulator and New Zealand Exchange, along with EY, produced a very interesting report this week, Growing New Zealand's Capital Markets, looking 10 years out towards 2029, a vision and growth agenda to promote stronger capital markets for all New Zealanders. All I can say is happy birthday to the NZX team and I wish Chairman James Miller and all of the staff at NZX a very, very successful week of celebrations and moreover, a very exciting prospect of developing their agenda, the NZX's business and indeed a deeper, better capital market for New Zealand and the Kiwi economy throughout the world. In People News this week, BME, the Spanish exchange, have created a new post. They are going to have a chief data officer, Arturo Marino, who was, until this appointment, the IT manager in Grupo Morabank, has been given the job. His functions as CDO are the Digital Transformation, Data and Analytics, Innovation and New Technologies. Whoa, that's quite a brief. Support for the implementation of new projects and coordination of IT with information security. This is all part of the ongoing, well, frankly, it seems to be revolution. They call it changes in the company's management team as the BME moves on post the Antonio Zoido CEO era. Over in Scotland, the upstart new Scottish exchange project, Heather, in parentheses, yet another new UK stock exchange, just for those who foolishly think the London Stock Exchange is some form of a monopolist. And we haven't even mentioned SIBO yet, the largest single trading venue in Europe of shares across the EU28, who are of course also headquartered in London, let alone other venues like Aquis and so forth. Anyway, Project Heather have appointed as head of market operations Andy Clarkson, who brings 30 years experience in asset management, having worked of course in Edinburgh, Scotland's asset management haven previously being head of market operations for, amongst others, Scottish widows. In Australia, Ken Henry, the, until recently one might have said indomitable, former chairman of one of the leading banks, director of the Australian Stock Exchange, long-standing Treasury Mandarin, and man who seems to have run aground in his career over recent banking scandals, etc., there is a huge debate on over whether he's going to be allowed to continue as a director of ASX. Various of the share proxy voting services seem to have come out against his re-election. I have to admit that ultimately, when considering the life and career of Ken Henry, there is now just too much data which suggests he is another, well, unfortunately, overbearing former civil servant with an ego who has ultimately destroyed his own career with some staggeringly unfortunate public remarks. Those remarks in particular involve a presentation in front of a parliamentary commission over the issue of certain banking frauds that have been taking place in front of a royal commission in Australia recently. To that end, I think sadly, Mr Henry is probably not a valid candidate for the ASX board. And indeed, I think the ASX board in its entirety may have to look at the concept of a large dose of regeneration in the near future. Too many of those figures seem to have been around too long. And indeed, moreover, the ASX needs to get out of its monopolist mindset and become, well, the crusader for capitalism, which it was when it was first given the great opportunity of going from a mutual member organisation to being an electronically traded entity, to being a for-profit entity, to being listed on its own exchange, all at the time somewhat groundbreaking moves 30 years ago. And yet what we have now is 
Who grabbed the headlines this week? Well, it was the Hong Kong Exchange by grasping the metal and seeking to buy the London Stock Exchange. The ASX needs to get its mojo back. The ASX needs to become a crusader for capitalism. And unfortunately, so far, it doesn't seem to be doing that. And that's probably why it needs to regenerate the board. And indeed, probably, it is difficult to see what justification there is for reappointing Mr Ken Henry. Over at BitMEX, they have been suffering quite a large quantity of upheaval. Their chief operating officer, their head of compliance, amongst others, have all left. Why, you might ask? Well, of course, I think it could be somewhat related to the current CFTC probe into their business. BitMEX aren't taking it lying down. Not only are a large number of staff disappearing, but also they've hired a veteran general counsel. Derek Goebel, a very experienced figure in the field of US finance, is going to be joining and presumably has a remit to try and knock the BitMEX exchange into some sort of shape that's going to be more comfortable for the CFTC as a whole. Now, the Honourable Christopher Giancarlo has joined the board of directors of the American Financial Exchange, the latest venture from the brilliant mind, the beautiful mind of Professor Dr Richard Sandor. I wish him every success with that appointment, even though if I must say I'm not convinced by his somewhat knee-jerk and, well, I suppose Trumpian remarks against the Hong Kong Exchange's bid to buy the London Stock Exchange. For those who wonder about where the order of the trough has been this week, well, we've had the blob making some rather unfortunate appointments, in my opinion. Ollie Robbins was knighted by Theresa May and her leaving honours list as Prime Minister, a standard practice in the UK to dob a few honours on top of those who've served you when you've been Prime Minister and you're leaving office. He's known without much affection in the UK as oily in much of the UK media, and he's going to, well, where do you go when you're a blind Europhile and you believe entirely in some sort of a political stitch-up? Oh, oddly, he's going to go to Goldman Sachs. Who would have ever guessed that after leading what was, frankly, the UK's dismal strategy of supplication, not negotiation per se, for Brexit under the auspices of Theresa May herself? Meanwhile, over in Brussels, they announced the new European Commission, and frankly, it's a rather sorry affair. Yes, there do happen to be 13 women and 14 men, so we've achieved some sort of parity of the sexes. But really? Well, first of all, it looks like the Chicago Mercantile Exchange board on steroids. I mean, 27 commissioners, we've got eight vice presidents, and some of those vice presidents are charged with, frankly, rather curious concepts. One of them has the remit of protecting the European way of life. What does that amount to? Long lunches with wine and lots of holidays? I don't know either. City AM noted, with a certain degree of justified cynicism, yesterday Margaret Vestager, the EU's pit bull in the era of tech powerhouses, was given a second run as chief competition commissioner, except this time with superpowers. Now she's also the vice president for EU Digital Affairs. She'll have the ability to expand her reach outside of the antitrust arena and into... Well, we're not quite sure yet. At least Vestager isn't actually under investigation. The thing that's absolutely disgraceful about many of these nominees are that several of them are currently under some form of criminal or other investigation by authorities for matters such as fraud, expenses fraud, etc. And as we know, indeed, one of the commissioners, he actually got accused and was prosecuted for insider dealing in the course of the last few years. 
True, Vestager has been, as a competition commissioner, coherent in places with relation to, say, the merger of equal desperation. Albeit that was hardly a challenge. I mean, I think anybody with a nice of common sense could see that this was a blatant monopoly creation from a mile off. It's just a pity the Deutsche Börse and LSE and their advisors had something like half a billion dollars worth of myopia in the process, which wasted 18 months of management time or longer. However, Vestager sees American technology as a challenge to Europe, as opposed to wanting to build Europe from the bottom up, which is something the European Union is physically incapable of structuring itself towards because it's essentially a crypto-communist top-down organisation. The European Union remains rooted in dirigisme and protectionism. Ah, maybe those are European values. The von der Leyen presidency looks, frankly, highly dubious, and that's just with the appointment of these commissioners and what a ragbag lot many of them are. With such a top tier of protectionist thinking blatantly apparent, I'm frankly not optimistic that the EU will do more than accelerate its existing tailspin or at a absolute best maintain a degree of stasis while trying to paper over the cracks of, well, yes. Now then we come to the euro. 10 basis points interest rate cut this week, 20 billion euros of quantitative easing every month. The eurozone looks sickly, ladies and gentlemen. That's not investment advice. That's just a standard financial health warning. This looks as if, well, we started with whatever it takes. And as Mario Draghi is departing office as the head of the European Central Bank, the ECB, it really, really does look very, very worrying what's going on in the European economy itself. DLT Malta is the book of the blockchain island, consisting of thoughts from leading local advocates and practitioners of the crypto economy, led by the Prime Minister, the Honourable Joseph Muscat MP. DLT Malta is edited by myself, Patrick L. Young, and Joseph Anthony de Bono. The book can be obtained from all leading bookstores worldwide. If you want to understand Bitcoin, blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the broader impact of the distributed ledger, this book is packed with insights and information about the potential for the technology. DLT Malta, Thoughts from the Blockchain Island, is published by DV Books on behalf of the industry association Blockchain Malta, in bookstores now. Back to the jobs news in the parish this week. IEX co-founder and chief operating officer John Schwall is going to retire. All the very, very best to him. And we also have a story of redemption of one sort. Elmer Funk Cooper, the former CEO of the ASX, the Australian Stock Exchange, he was forced to resign as a result of a kerfuffle that had been alleged during the course of his previous time as the boss of Tab Corp, a large parimutuel betting organisation in Australia, which was originally owned by the government. So he is, as he said, delighted with the outcome and looking forward to getting on with my life after actually spending what must have been a very stressful three and a half years. There are many, many ways in which we have disagreed with Elmer Funk Cooper over the years. Many things which he did when managing ASX, which I find very difficult to stomach. But I wish him all the best rejuvenating his stalled career. He is a free man. He has been cleared. And I hope that he will manage to prosper in the future as he returns to Australian corporate life. Over in markets and regulation... The National Commodity Clearing Limited, that's the CCP Clearinghouse, which is a wholly owned subsidiary of the National Commodity Derivatives Exchange, NCDX, in India, has got a renewal of its license for three years from SEBI. I have to say, I find it quite remarkable that SEBI is so prescriptive that it keeps everybody hanging with their licenses over these sorts of three-year terms. But at the same time, it's good news, just as SEBI itself appears to be increasing access to commodity derivative markets in India. 
Thanks for listening to Exchange Invest Weekly. We welcome your feedback. You can contact me directly, patrick at derivativesvision.com with any comments. Meanwhile, if you enjoyed this show, we would welcome you giving us a thumbs up. Or if you have time, a positive review will always be welcome wherever you find this podcast. In technology, not a huge amount of news this week. IOSCO are recommending synchronizing clocks used for timestamping to put them all into UTC, the universal time zone. Yeah, it's a great story, but what about tolerance? I mean, the problem is a unified measure is one thing, but we all know that time is not actually uniform across every server or network due to a multiplicity, a cornucopia, a near infinity of different issues. There is a danger here. The regulators are trying to have precision where the metric doesn't exist at the micro, let alone the quantum level. Exciting technology and product development news. The Turkish Takas Bank, that's essentially part of the settlement house and clearing house of the Bourse Istanbul Group, they've announced that they're going to create a blockchain platform for gold trading. It's dubbed BIGA. I don't know if that's going to be bigger, BIGA, or indeed Big A, which sounds a bit like a rap star. Anyway, Takas Bank's new project aims to enable people to transfer physical gold stored at the Borsa Istanbul Stock Exchange. Very, very interesting move. Welcome, given the fact that, of course, one of the exchanges that were added to the portfolio of the original Borsa Istanbul, although, well, when was that, five years ago? In terms of a series of sort of government-engineered mergers was also, of course, the Turkish gold exchange itself. Meanwhile, Eurex. They're scrapping fees to attract euro clearing from London ahead of Brexit. They've launched incentive programmes to support their Brexit preparations. They've launched interproduct spreads for fixed income futures. Look, Good luck to Eurex. They have to try this. I'm not convinced that they're going to prove a big winner at the portfolio level, but they essentially have to try it on. At the same time, it looks, well, probably like something which is more akin to being a Sisyphean effort, but it's essential. Eurex must try this, even though I think it's going to be very, very difficult to break the bank swap clear monopoly within LCH, or at least operated by LCH, as we should remember. In a sister entity of the London Stock Exchange to LCH itself, Curve Global have rolled out their all-you-can-eat trading fee scheme. Good luck to them. The MCX, the multi-quantity exchange in India, they are launching trading in three stock indices, while SEBI has started fresh talks on weather derivatives after receiving a proposal from NCDX, the National Commodity and Derivatives Exchange. Over in Asia, the Singaporean low sulfur fuel price, that's an oil index created by Argus. Uh, Apex, the upstart market there in Singapore, they've signed on to license that for some proposed new derivatives. And then, of course, there was perhaps the most interesting product news of the week came from the Intercontinental Exchange. Again, look at the Intercontinental Exchange. No acquisitions, no high-level bids. What are they doing? Incrementally growing the pie. One of their moves was potentially, we think, is going to be energy, oil and gas in Abu Dhabi. What an interesting prospect in the Middle East that could be. And then also they signed a deal this week. Fabulous deal. Trade web markets. Part of, of course, the Refinitiv Group at the moment, but a separate listed entity in its own right. Very, very clever. Can you believe there was never actually a proper closing settlement benchmark price for US Treasury bonds? US cash Treasury bonds, I mean. How incredible that everybody missed that out. ICE Benchmark Administration, IBA, have signed a deal with TradeWeb Markets. It's a brilliant first cooperation between ICE and TradeWeb. It provides top-tier reference data to the world. It builds elegantly on what has been, well, the almost stealth rise to prominence of the ICE bond business itself, following the launch of ICE bonds after the bond point and TMC acquisitions. 
That's not to forget the excitement we have upcoming, the ETF hub between ICE and BlackRock for bond trading. Anyway, for those who are interested, the minutiae is that the full methodology, which can be found on the ICE website, but prices are being taken off the TradeWeb platform every day at 1500 Eastern and published at 1545. The process is now live and clearly it's exciting that we have a proper IOSCO-friendly financial benchmark principle coherent benchmark closing price for the US Treasury market. Of course, there's a lot of speculation still on LIBOR, multiplicity of links, which I will post below this post, all about different stories. And in fact, we had dozens more during the course of the week in Exchange Invest. If you're not a subscriber, remember, you're getting some information, some pith at the weekend. You could have had this information every day on your desk every morning, if only you were paying the licensing fee for the Exchange Invest daily newsletter, the business of bourses delivered straight to your trading desk. LCH, they've set a Euroswap clearing launch that's going to be launched on October the 21st based on the European Central Bank's new Euro overnight risk-free rate. Meanwhile, demonstrating the fact that for all those who say, oh, Chinese protectionism, worries about bids from Hong Kong, etc, etc, the CME, they're getting their hands dirty and quite rightly so. They're launching a new Shanghai Gold Futures contract on October the 14th, connecting global market participants to the Chinese physical gold market through the Shanghai Gold Exchange, SGE. Good on them, CME. But at the same time, it does lead you to wonder about, well, all of this speculation about what's happening in the LSE in Hong Kong and how potentially the UK government might step in to stop that. And by the way, here's a little footnote fact for you, a factoid to bear in mind. During the course of even last year, trading in Chinese yuan, US dollar pair in Forex, was actually doing bigger volume than the euro US dollar pair in, yes, you've guessed it, the London Financial Centre. If the UK turns its back on the Hong Kong exchange deal, it does so at the peril of truly endangering the city of London's global free market prominence in a way that is vastly, by an order of magnitude, greater than any possible risk to a no-deal Brexit. Meanwhile, China is working proactively towards launching live pig financial futures contracts. That's going to be good news as port prices have been soaring during the course of recent weeks. Equally, apparently we've got the Saudi Aramco IPO going forward with nine banks getting top roles on what could be the world's biggest IPO. And of course, equally, an interesting story came out this week from Bloomberg, repeated in the Singapore Straits Times amongst other syndicated sources. The battle for IPOs is heating up amongst Southeast Asian exchanges. Of course, QV if you had, well, say, a London Hong Kong powerhouse. How would that look when it came to bidding for this IPO flow in Southeast Asia? Hashtag asking for a friend. Ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of a Hong Kong London centric week in markets. If you've enjoyed this, come along, drop by and subscribe to Exchange Invest Weekly where you can read the PLY Pith daily. We have covered at least another 150 stories during the course of the week in our newsletter, but this has given you some of the headline attractions of what's been going on in the business of bourses. My name is Patrick L. Young. Thanks for joining me on the Exchange Invest podcast. I wish you a great week in markets.
This show relates to the business of bourses. It is not to be construed as investment advice, nor are we making any investment recommendations. Please consult an investment advisor before you make any investments, and for goodness sake, do your due diligence and do not make investments without complying with the regulations in your home state. Exchange Invest cannot be held responsible for any investment decisions made as a result of our programme, which is for entertainment purposes only. The material herein is copyright Patrick L. Young at the date of publication, while our music and sound effects are sourced from copyright-free sources. Thanks for listening to Exchange Invest Weekly, the exchange of information.